Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I am joined by Jennifer Fondreve, founder of Day One Ready. A Fortune 500 C-suite survivor of three multi-billion dollar acquisitions, Jennifer founded Day One Ready, a consultancy that advises forward-thinking business executives, private equity, and frontline leaders on how to prepare for the human capital challenges of mergers and acquisitions. Jennifer's experienced all sides of the M&A deal equation and saw too many growth strategies fail due to a workforce that couldn't pivot and adapt as quickly as leadership anticipated. In addition to consulting, she is a frequent keynote speaker and contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Inc. Magazine. Hitting number one on Amazon, Jennifer's recently published book, Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions, draws on her two and a half years of research interviews to guide executives and frontline leaders through the challenges of business uncertainty. As you'll see in the interview, Jennifer is absolutely an expert in the people side of M&A. She has a lot of great insights. We get into a lot of the elements of her book in this, uh, but there is a lot more in the book that we weren't able to cover just due to time. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about grief in this, which was a really interesting uh, take on mergers and acquisitions that I hadn't really thought about and the role that emotion and grief plays in these transactions. But I would encourage you to read the book too, whether you are thinking about an M&A deal, uh, whether you are about to experience one, or just you know whether you're a business person who wants to understand what happens when any company goes through some kind of change. So I think this is something that everybody will enjoy or get something out of. Without further ado, here is Jennifer Fondreve. Three, two, one, and we are live. Jennifer, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's a Friday afternoon that we're recording this. It's a beautiful day outside, and uh, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. But, you know... Do we really know it's Friday? All of the days kind of blur together at this point. I'm not, I actually have to check a calendar, make sure it is a Friday. I did to do that yesterday. Yeah, it's uh, every. It depends on your attitude. Every day either feels like Friday or every day feels like Monday. Depends kind of how you wake up, face the day. Uh, well, I appreciate you being on the show here. You are. You literally wrote the book on the people side of M and A, and this is a show called People Business, and it's all about. The fact that every business is in some way a people business and how you manage those dynamics often leads to success or failure. And so, you know, M&A is just such a great topic to talk about on the show because most of, at least stereotypically, most of the conversation around M&A is not necessarily on the people side, other than maybe how many people can you cut and create some efficiencies and bring teams together. It's more of like the 
you know, the execution of the people, but not really thinking about the people and what they're going through. And I know in, in reading your book, that's a big part of it. And so I want to dive into that today. But so you wrote the book as an M&A survivor. I, I thought it might be good just to have you sort of start and recap your career to date and what experiences led you to writing the book. So uh, I know we only have a short period of time, so I won't go through the sordid details of my work history, but maybe the highlights that relate to my uh, ability to claim I'm an M&A survivor. So I've been through three, three multi-billion dollar acquisitions. First one billion is probably- with a B. Billion with a B, yes. Uh, and the first one that I went through is probably the most well-known. Uh, it was when Nokia, Nokia, a pretty well-known brand at the time, uh, acquired Navtech, a digital map-making company. Uh, and that happened in 2008 for roughly $9 billion, which at the time was a huge amount of money. Now that, that feels like chump change, but uh, at that time it was a lot. Uh, and the second acquisition experience was Asurian, uh, which provides protection plans for smartphones, phones in general, and they had acquired national electronic warranties. And I was brought in uh, to that uh, national electronic warranties and the team I inherited then had been acquired. And so they, I had actually gone through what they were going through. I'd already been on, on an acquired side. Now I was playing a different role. Uh, and really, I'd have to say it was that second acquisition experience that had me thinking more seriously about a book, because I realized as I walked leaders around me that I was a more productive leader because I knew what my team was going through. I knew how they felt. Uh, and I, I knew, frankly, the questions they weren't asking me. And so it was in that second acquisition experience, I thought, wow, I should really write a book about this, a survivor's handbook, what to expect. As I jokingly always say, what to expect when you're not expecting to be acquired. Uh, and then the third acquisition experience actually was Apollo Education Group. I had been brought in to lead a B2B startup. Uh, Apollo Education Group, you may know about them from University of Phoenix is one of the, the schools in their portfolio. Uh, and they wanted to leverage that talent management solution. They wanted to do talent management solutions for Fortune 500 and leverage their expertise in, in learning for working adults. And in that scenario, they were acquired by Apollo Global Management, uh, private equity, uh, fairly well-known private equity firm. So again, uh, you know, another multi-billion dollar acquisition. And in that case, uh, what I recall most of all is people saying to me, wow, you seem so calm. Uh, once the announcement came out and I said, well, at this point, I know the playbook. I know it's going to happen. I know how these things tend to go. And sure enough, <laughs> it, it played out as I expected. And I had actually talked to a few people in that company when we first learned that we were being acquired by Apollo Global Management. And they said, now you really need to write that book because we're seeing everything that you keep talking about. We're seeing it play out. And so really, it was those three experiences that informed my view and had me convinced that there just had to be a better way through M&A. And it wasn't going to happen unless I brought attention to a lot of the challenges, the people challenges that I saw happening in, in certainly my three experiences. And that was reinforced when I interviewed executives for the book. 
Yeah. So talk about that a little bit too, because the book's not just your three experiences. You, you went out and surveyed a slew of business leaders and, and compiled a, more of a, an array of experiences than just your own into the book. So what, what was that experience like? Well, in, and at first, I would have to say it was proof of concept for me because I was, at the time I was entertaining writing the book, I was interviewing to be another marketing executive, a CMO at another company. Uh, You're and going for number four. Potentially, yeah. I was, I was certainly in the process of interviewing and I wanted to, at the time, I just wanted to get the book done before I took my next uh, marketing role. But every time I interviewed executives, they would always say to me, this is really important. This message needs to get out there because they, it was almost a confessional. Uh, a number of executives said, I've, I've really not talked about this with a lot of people, but there were a lot of lessons learned that they had going through M&A. And these were CEOs, CFOs, HR leaders, private equity, middle managers. I really wanted to get all perspectives because at the time, my proof of concept was, is this just me? Did I just go through this or have other people experienced the same? And as I consistently heard the same themes, the same challenges, that's what convinced me that I needed to take the time to write the book. And because I kept getting asked that question of what are you doing besides the book, uh, it, it's really at that moment that I thought a book's not going to do anything on its own. I, I have to do more around the book if I really want the book to have the, the impact um, that I think it could and, and, and the ability to help people navigate what can be a really disruptive period in your career. So what, did, so what did that turn into? What are you doing now? So now uh, I founded Day One Ready, which is a, an M&A consultancy focused on the human capital challenges of M&A. Uh, founded in 2018, so uh, just a couple of years ago. And really for me, the reason why I call it Day One Ready is my belief, reinforced by those executive interviews, that the moment an executive thinks about pursuing an M&A deal, everything changes because just the thought of that starts to inform and influence decision-making. And even if, uh, and this was proven out in my research, even if the, the, the thought of doing an M&A deal hasn't been shared, your workforce, your employees, your seconds in command start to pick up on it. There, there are things that you're going to make decisions now through the lens of, hmm, how might this affect an M&A deal? How would this affect our valuation? It, it just starts to inform how you approach things. And so my belief was the sweet spot needs to be that LOI due diligence period when it's just being considered because that's the time, as you mentioned right up front, it tends to be very transactional driven. It's, it's about the valuation. It's about the, the forecasting and the possibilities from a growth strategy standpoint. And the people piece of it is, is an afterthought. Or, or I shouldn't say afterthought because I don't want to be completely negative, but it's just it's considered the, a next phase. And my belief was by delaying that discussion, that hurt the ability of, uh, of the deal to actually achieve its true potential and its valuation. And so, uh, and that was reinforced in all the um, interviews that I did, particularly with CEOs and CFOs who had been through multiple M&A deals. Where is it that you see the, 
the people considerations go wrong? You said it, it kind of gets pushed as into maybe a secondary consideration. Where does it go wrong? Like what are the what are the decisions that you start to see happen or where you start to see breakdown that you're like, oh, this is gonna this one decision is gonna turn into a, a snowball as it runs down the mountain and lead to a big problem at the bottom. Well, and uh, and it's interesting because this was one of the key lessons learned that more than one CEO shared with me, and that was an assumption that the people piece could be taken care of later by HR uh, or by other people. Right? It was just let's 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 focus on the deal. Let's just get this done, and then we'll see you know what we need to do in terms of organizational chart and setup and and whatnot. And and it was. It came up enough times that it's it's part of the HBR article that I wrote. It it was an acknowledgement that by delaying that discussion, um, they felt that they they had a couple too many unexpected people challenges that undermined the business case. Um, so I think that first and 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 foremost, I think the other thing too, and it's why. I focus the day one ready, the focus is on that LOI due diligence because oftentimes leadership thinks they're in alignment. They, they'll talk it through. They'll say, yes, absolutely. This is where we want to be. This is the desired future state. But it's not until you really, you write it down and you articulate the vision that leadership starts to realize, huh, that's, I, we don't have the same definition of what future success looks like. And, and so for me, delaying the people discussion and not having that alignment session early on, those two factors are critically important to future success as it relates to people because it forces discussions. Um, and it's why one of the exercises I do as a consultant, I do a pre-mortem. So that assumes you've made the decision, you're pursuing the deal, and now you attack that deal. You almost do a reverse SWAT. What are all the external forces, whether it's new government regulation, competitor um, moving ahead on a product you hadn't anticipated and launching before you, you know, government regulations, and then even internally, loss of certain talent, um, integration where it doesn't, it doesn't work out. It really, you think through all possible scenarios and, and are prepared for it. So even if they don't happen, you at least have the plan identified for what you need to consider should it happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm forcing conversations earlier in the journey, if that makes sense. How receptive are people to having those conversations early in the journey? Because it seems like that upfront period, you know, things are still hush hush. You, you don't want to disclose too much. The negotiations are still going on. And so it, it seems like that is it can be a very limiting time or, or a time where you're not having open free dialogue when mm -hmm. what you're saying is you, you need to be having some of that open free dialogue because you're going to wind up with problems if you're not thinking about some of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and I will say, uh, it's why I say forward thinking business leaders and executives, because you really, you have to be thinking long term. You know the transactional piece is the short term. Let's 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 get this done. Let's make it happen. And I say forward thinking because you've got the long term view. And what's interesting is my book uh, has been a way to have that conversation sooner in the process because I've had a number of conversations, um, particularly with private equity partners, who will say, "Absolutely love your message. I think having you as an advisor 
um, will be great, but we don't have want to have the conversation too early. We don't want to spook them. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, my premise is, well, this isn't spooking. It's a matter of, of anticipating and being prepared for um, what potentially could, could come. And that's where my book has been enormously helpful because they can bring my book into the room and allow executives to see and read through this, the, the stages of grief, the personalities that might emerge, the way your workforce could react to the news. And, and that has been an unexpected um, entryway for me. I mean, I wrote the book uh, thinking it would be the post, the, you know, the post handbook, if you will, but it's actually been a way for me to communicate that message and that need uh, indirectly that allows me then to come in afterwards. It seems like intent matters in that conversation too, because if you're going in and you're trying to weasel to the best deal, or you're, you know, you're trying to get some concession and you're, you're not trying to create the best ongoing company that you can, right? If, if you're focused on winning the short-term deal, right. you're maybe not going to have that conversation. But if you can go in and say, you know, this is how we think about acquisitions, we're we're bringing this all together. It's all about long-term performance. And so we're going to come in and we're going to have these maybe difficult conversations up front because this is what we believe as business leaders. And it can almost be, if, if you do it the right way and you really believe it and you have that intent, it can almost be like a rallying cry around like, or you could even get more collaboration from the sellers potentially, especially if they're sticking around like in a private equity deal where they're right. going to continue to operate the company, you know, might make them feel more comfortable that you really are thinking through some of those issues. It's just, yeah, absolutely. often it's, it's the story you're telling yourself in your head about why you're doing something that then impacts how it comes out and comes across to other people. Yeah. And what's, what's been interesting is, uh, several times w with private equity, uh, partners who I've talked to, they've said this allows having you as an advisor allows us to have that people piece, not just give lip service to it, but I demonstrate the, the need to, to show how we look at values and valuation and the fact that the people piece of this component is incredibly important to us and how we add you to our portfolio of companies. So I have found it's, again, it's not with, uh, with each um, firm, but certainly the ones who are thinking long-term and recognize that that people piece uh, is critical to the success of the deal. Um, and that's where I, having those conversations gives me hope that, uh, you know, more and more they'll recognize the need to focus on the people piece sooner in that, in that discussion. So the book, I know we've been talking about the book. The book is called Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. I actually have it here in my hand. Uh, I have my annotated copy of it. Um, and it's, it's interesting how you broke it up. And it really is from the survivor's perspective. And so it's useful if your company is about to be bought or it's useful if you're a leader in a company that's about to go through a merger or an acquisition. Uh, kind of on either end, and then talking about the different things that happen, the different personalities that come up afterwards. Um, how should leaders be thinking about merger, about the people side of M&A upfront? Like what, what are the prompts that they should be asking themselves so that they're setting themselves up the right way for the integrations? 
Well, and it's, it's why I focus on those sections uh, in my book in particular, because there, it, it's an emotional roller coaster when you go through an M and A, regardless of the size, and and that came through in in the research that I did as well. Whether whether it's a multinational or a, or a middle market or small size small size business, you still have the emotional component. And what I wanted to focus on in the book, and these are the cues um, to answer your question for for leaders to look out for. First, your organization is going to experience stages of grief. The funny, or I shouldn't say funny, but the academic term for that is the change curve. But I say, uh, you know, it's, it takes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. Your organization is grieving the loss of the company that no longer exists. Even if you say nothing's changed, we're going to be the same. It isn't. It just by nature of having gone through a merger and acquisition, everything has changed. And so those stages of grief, one, you need to be aware that it's going to happen. And secondly, that not everyone in your organization is going to go through those stages of grief at the same time. You might have some people who quickly get to acceptance, who say, this is the best thing ever, can't wait, let's go and do it. But you could also have a significant percentage of your workforce that's, that's in denial. That, that doesn't understand why this happened, um, feels blindsided by the news, particularly if you've got, uh, I'll, I'll say, a head of sales or someone who considered their perspective important to the future of the company now finds out that you're, you're being acquired or you're acquiring someone else. So all of people have different reactions to that news and you just need to be prepared for that. And, and people will go through denial um, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those are the five stages. And I bring those to life in the book. Uh, and my intent with that was really not only to identify the organization goes through it, but to help the frontline leader, middle manager get through it, understand that they weren't going crazy um, by experiencing these stages. And one of the, one of the great things, I should say, uh, the most rewarding things have been the number of people who've reached out to me, who've read the book, who were going through a merger and acquisition and said, I thought I was going crazy. I couldn't figure out why I was so depressed or why I was so angry. And um, I have a Spotify playlist that accompanies that section. Um, you know, not to make fun of it, but I kind of equate the, um, the stages of grief kind of like when you have a bad breakup, you know, so rather than burn burn his or her clothes on the front lawn. I say, come on, you get, you know, do it like you would get over a breakup and it's listening to music, right? So I think I've got Led Zeppelin in there and Anita Baker and Frank Sinatra. But the point of that is they're stages and you need to get through the journey. And, uh, and so I'm trying to help uh, individual man, middle managers get through that, but give executives line of sight um, to expect that. And then the other section are the, are the personalities, the, the people who, or I should say the personalities that emerge when uncertainty is, is the norm, the, when fear is the operative emotion of a company. And with mergers and acquisitions, it's the most disruptive, typically the most disruptive thing that can happen to a company. And your, your business case can be solid on paper but you don't know if it's going to succeed or not until you start executing, until you start to see what people do. 
And this repeatedly came up, particularly when I interviewed executives and we talked about the personalities, how often they were surprised by the changes that people go through. And so here's that why I call my book a satirical business book, because each of those 10 personalities, I have a caricature that brings them to life. Because I thought, one, I thought, who the hell's going to read an M&A book? Uh, that would be so depressing. <laughs> but I thought, let me just bring the dark humor. There's a lot of dark humor that happens in M&A. If you've ever heard somebody share their war stories, you're, you just can't believe some of the things that happen. And they tend to revolve around people, just strange things that people do. And so I wanted to, with this section on personalities, bring to life, you've got You've got the dominatrix who leads by fear, you know, the bully person who doesn't really care about how you feel. It's just, let's get this done. You have the black widow. So that person who presents as an ally, but actually is looking to just take as much information from you as possible and make you expendable. And, and I, I wanted to come at it from a humorous point of view to identify the personality, but also say, listen, you don't want to become one of these. You've got to be smart. Um, this success rests on, on people to coming, coming together collaboratively to make this work. And so my mission there was to bring to life the different personalities and help people, um, identify them and also not become one and then navigate, should they, um, you know, have a know-it-all boss, <laughs> how to manage the different personality types. Yeah, that could be difficult. I, so I want to get into the personalities, but I have, I have one or two more questions around the stages of grief because it seems like that part of M&A is over, either overlooked or is treated, is kind of given a, a smaller amount of attention than it should be. It, it seems like there's a little bit of denial around that to say like, oh yeah, sure, no, our people are going to go through that, but we're going to communicate, we're going to tell them X, Y, Z, and like we're going to move past that. And do you find that that's underestimated? Absolutely. And why, why, do, you, why do you think that is? Like what's, what's going on in the leader's head that just makes that so continuously underestimated? I think it's a couple things. One is, and, and you may have witnessed this uh, as well, preparing for a deal, I mean, it's a marathon. There's a lot going on. Even if you're trying to keep things moving, you've typically from the time you think about it to actually getting the deal done, months and months and months can pass. So by the time the deal is done, the leadership is just, let's get this, let's get moving. Like they, they just want to bring it to life. And, they, and, and time is of the essence, right? A sense of urgency is high. And so I, I, I never believe there's any malicious intent, but it's just that the leadership has been dealing with the thought of the deal for so long, they're ready to go. And so when the deal is made and not everyone is acting enthusiastically, it, it comes almost as a surprise. So that's why I, I, I make such a point of emphasizing your organization is going to go through this. They're not, in fact, that first meeting, most of what you say is going to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's wah, 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 because people are thinking in their head, do I still have a job? Will I still be with the same team? Do, will I retain the same title? That's what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about the company. They're not excited for the company in that moment. They're thinking about themselves as anyone would. Um, and that actually, what's interesting is how many interviews I did where uh, an executive shared, 
he had been a serial acquirer and then his company was acquired. And he said, I never realized how emotional an experience that is. He said he called the former CEO and, and vented. And the, the CEO said, well, this is what you've been doing for a while, you know? And he said, I know, but I just didn't realize how emotional it is. And yeah. so I think everybody should have to go been, through one first before they go and acquire somebody else. Absolutely. And, and that's why I wanted to write about it. And, and I was encouraged by so many executives who said, this is the part that nobody talks about because it is emotional. And, and the other answer that I have for that is grief is just, it's not a, typically something that's openly discussed in a business setting. It's, it's, people don't know how to talk about it. And so the thought of, and, 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 and frankly, the, the feedback I got when people read my book what typically came up was, I didn't realize this is what this was. You, you captured it, but I didn't realize it was, I was grieving. And a, a grief counselor who I interviewed said it best. She said that grieving is mourning the future that won't be. And almost instantaneously, and I thought that captures exactly how it feels. Yeah, you, that's perfect. Because we all, I mean, we all do it, right? You envision an amazing career path. Right, you're going to be SVP of whatever, and and that's the path you're on, and you kind of see your 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 journey towards that, and suddenly, in an instant, all of that comes into question, and 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 frankly, you can almost feel that it's unraveling as the weeks go and things change and uh, the tectonic plates shift, and now that future uh, doesn't look possible, and you're grieving that. So, well, um, that's, I mean, that's applicable to so many things outside of M&A too, right? Anytime life changes, yes, there, you know, there's a, there, there is a little bit of grief there for the, the life that you now don't get to lead. Um, yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never thought about it that way, but you know, we, I guess you go through micro grieving sort of, uh, every time there's a big change in your life, you know, um, when you go from being single to being a parent or or single yes. being married or when you go from, you know, being no kids to having kids or getting a new job or doing anything. There's like, there's a future, even if you're really excited for it. Right. There's that element of like, well, now this future, this door closed and that future won't happen. Right. And so, right. yeah. And that's, that's why the, the key thread for that section, if you will, is I want to help people get to acceptance. And I reinforce acceptance doesn't mean you have to like what happened. You have to just accept that it happened. Because if you keep holding on to the old way of doing things, you're never going to see the opportunities ahead of you because you're still constantly looking for ways to just hold on to the past. And that's why I equate it to a breakup. You're never going to find that future better partner if all you're doing is thinking about what you lost with that last partner. And uh, and I think that's what's been particularly rewarding for me is how, how much that has helped people because it isn't talked about. And, and yet it's a significant part of what happens during, uh, you know, that post-deal situation. Do you, do you, have you found in any of your research that there is a way to speed up the grieving process? Uh, yes and no. Because I, 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 I emphasize particularly for leaders that you can't, you can't try and speed it up by saying, yeah, you can't stay stuck in denial. Get your head out of the sand. Let's go. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and the more, Come on. Exactly. Yeah. The more you do that, 
the, the worse it can get. Your employees are going to go through stages at a different rate. But this is where communication is absolutely critical. People need to feel comfortable, whether it's venting, whether it's sharing their concerns. Um, you know, when I talk about that, that second acquisition experience, because I had been in their shoes, I knew what they were feeling. And they, I gave the, I did one-on-ones with everyone and I said, ask me anything, any question you have, I want to answer it. And then we're going to come together and I want to make sure everyone's clear on what the way forward is. And in that situation, what became clear to me is all of them were asking questions, but they weren't, they weren't asking the questions I knew that they had. And so when I had that group come back together, I put up a, a slide that showed all the questions they'd asked me in the the answers that I had or things that I was working on. And then I put up another slide that showed, here's all the questions you didn't ask me, but I know that you have. And I know it because I've been in your shoes. And it was fascinating to me how much that opened up the dialogue. Because one guy actually said, you know, for a minute there, I was beginning to think you were a witch because I couldn't figure out how you knew everything that we were thinking. And I said, well, no, I'm not a, I'm not a witch. We got to work on this together. We got to make this successful, but we won't make it successful if, if we aren't upfront and communicating and sharing how we feel. Um, and, and frankly, that's a, a big part of, of what I see happening now in, in, in the time of you know, this pandemic is the importance of communicating because we're, we are, we're, we're collectively grieving a past way of life. And, and you, have to, you have to be open and communicate around that because people are, are going through this in different stages as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting for me to see the parallels between what I've seen happen in an M&A scenario as well as what we've seen happen in this time of uncertainty. Have you read anything or, or had any experience with the impact of rituals on grieving? Yeah, one of, and I, I, um, I highlight this in, uh, in my book. I'm so impressed you, you read my book and <laughs> you're highlighting it even better than I am. One of the things that I emphasize, and this actually, um, you know, Kubler-Ross talks about this as well. It's, you have to have a, a ceremony almost to let go of the past. And, and often, and, and again, it's one of the things I coach executives on, you can't assume everybody's all excited and ready to run. You have to acknowledge what your company used to be, the, the value of that company. And, and this can be everything from you know, taking the, the old banners or, or, or things in the office and having a ceremony where you, you burn them or you, you, you know, encase them in something, almost a time machine, you, know, you bury them in the ground. But there's all different ways of doing that, but it's an acknowledgement of the the, the great things that your company has stood for and acknowledging that they will, they will continue and you are evolving that into the future because it allows people to feel that they still have value to contribute. It doesn't dismiss what they once were, but allows them to feel that, okay, we, yes, the things that we created with this company are still value, valuable and I now have an opportunity to bring that forward. Um, because if you accelerate that too much, it, it undermines people's um, supporting the future vision because now they're not sure, well, is what I did still important? Is it still valued? And if you highlight that, yes, what we did is valued, it's, it's, it's why we did this M&A 
and, and we want to bring that forward into this new company. Um, a ritual like that is amazingly powerful to really get people rallied behind that new vision. Yeah. And, you know, if you're taking the relationship analogy, it, it gives you that closure. Yes. Or, you know, if you take more of a, a cultural analogy, you know, you look at tribal cultures and they have some sort of ritual or initiation when you become an adult. You know, there's there's something that you have to do. And that signifies that you've sort of passed through a phase and become an adult. And that's when you're doing a, a merger or an acquisition, that's, that's essentially what you're doing, right? Is you're stepping into a new age, you're becoming a new thing. And so, yeah, it, yeah, it would seem to me like that could be really powerful. I've, I've read in a couple different places or, or seen people talk about the power of ritual to really impact how we think about and process the experiences of our lives. And it's just, yes. it, it's so fascinating that, you know, it's almost like a, a, a trick is the wrong word, but it, it really can reset your mind and your entire outlook on something. There was a great story about, and I don't know where this, I can't attribute to where I heard this, but about um, a, a man, I think it was a man who had lost his wife and he still had a lot of life left and wanted some companionship, but he had committed you know, until death do us part. And, and he had committed to his wife and felt that he needed to keep those vows. And somehow or another, he wound up having a conversation with a priest and they actually held a, a ceremony at the church where he went through, it was almost like a whole wedding. And he went through and at the end wound up presenting the priest with his rings. And the priest said, you know, your rights or your, um, your promises have been fulfilled your vows have been fulfilled and, and that, and then he was able to just like emotionally get through that. Yeah. And you know, um, it gives actually, me chills I, even telling that story, but yeah, I think that story comes from the power of moments, the Heath brothers yes, who yes. have done a ton. Um, I actually reference them all the time because what I love about that book is it highlights, you can create powerful, extraordinary moments. It doesn't just have to be birthdays and graduations. It doesn't have to be the set milestones that you expect you can create powerful moments. And I remember that story as well, because that's actually what made me think we need to do that around m and We need to acknowledge, you know, what something was in order to move forward. Yeah. So that book is The Power of Moments. And it's, it's a fantastic read or audio book. Um, I actually, I bought that uh, for all of the uh, service leaders uh, in our practice, just because I was like, this is so great for, you know, working with clients and and creating those moments for because we work with clients, you know, year over year for long periods of time, and it can get kind of repetitive. And so it there were there's just a ton of great stuff in that book. Yeah, I 100% I agree. But it's funny you, you use that story, because that story, same thing gave me goosebumps. And, and it was that that gave me my epiphany moment. I've I've coached and consulted a number of companies and helped them create those moments. Um, and, and systematically, they always say, I would never have thought to have done this, but this was so powerful. Yeah. Well, okay, good. Well, I'm glad I asked that question and we went, went down that <laughs> rabbit hole. That was great. Outside of that, out, outside of creating those moments, are there other tips that you give to clients on how to communicate either pre, you know, during execution or post? Yes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because everyone says key to success is communicating. And, and I'll say 
this is true, but there's a cadence to that communication. I think there's an assumption, well, if I have a town hall and I send out an email uh, and we have a couple of, you know, um, on live chats, we're good, right? Everyone's got this. They understand it. They're, we're moving forward. And I, and um, that's only part of the equation. It, acknowledging, yes, you have to communicate and you have to communicate even when you don't know answers to things. So what, what I always say is speak bluntly speak transparently and end with hope. Uh, and, uh, you know, Churchill's a great role model for, uh, for this, right? He, he's known, he is known for having spoken the hard truths, but always ending on a note of optimism. And, and that's, you know, he, he used that to get Britain into the war. And I, I think when, when executives ask about communication, I always highlight you can be transparent. There absolutely, uh, understandably, there are certain things where you don't know the answer to, but what people want to know is, do you understand how they feel? Are you, are you really thinking about the impact of this on them? And the more transparent you are, the more genuine you, you are about, listen, here's how I felt. This is why we're doing this. This is where the company is going and why I thought this was the right decision and the role that you all play in helping us get there, the more a leader speaks in those terms and allows people to feel invested in it, that they were considered um, as part of the decision-making, uh, you will have people getting to, getting to acceptance faster because as a leader, you have helped paint a picture for them that allows them to see their role in it. So. I think oftentimes there's, and, and you highlighted it up front, absolutely there are compliance issues and, and confidentiality, but uh, a story that I think about a lot and I, and I highlighted in my book, one of the women that I interviewed said she had a leader who helped their whole team be successful because of his transparency. And he was a senior, um, senior VP and he said, he got his group together and he said, listen, I don't know how our team is going to be valued in this new world. I, I know the direction. It was a very senior level. But the key for him was to be transparent with them about the fact that they needed to continue to do their job, but always look at where they could add value. And she said probably the best advice he gave was don't stay attached to your title. Look at the role that you have played, the value that you have added and your knowledge and your ability to learn quickly and demonstrate that at every opportunity that you get. So don't stay fixated on senior director, manager, VP, but look at what you know and what you can contribute and where you can learn as well and make that your focus. Uh, and she said him having that conversation with all of them helped them to see, okay, we could still be valued or we don't know, but it, it, he respected their intelligence. Uh, and she said the team um, did very well after that because they at least had visibility on what to expect and demonstrated their value quickly. And so, uh, you know, I, I highlight that as an example because transparency can just, it's about being open and upfront. Well, I mean, I think the advice that that gentleman gave to his team is applicable to any employee at any time, regardless of whether you're going through a merger or acquisition, right? Like, don't think about your title. Think about how you can add value. Think about how you can think critically about the problems that you're working on. It seems to me everyone that I've talked to, whether through this podcast for the 
you know, the few episodes that we've launched so far, or just out in general networking with people who, who are successful and are, and you can just tell they've got runway ahead of them and have, you know, flourishing, really interesting careers. Take that advice. You know, they're, they're always adding value. And because of that, they're abandoning titles all the time and moving into different roles and taking on fun projects and their careers evolve in all sorts of meaningful and interesting ways. And yeah, I think that's great advice at any point. And, and it is, I, it's why I, I, I said M and A is the most disruptive thing that can happen in your career because even rock stars. I mean, one of my personalities is the, the a rock star can become a former rock star because if you're fixated on what the metrics for success used to be and you hold on to those, you're going to be left behind. So even if you've done well, I, you know, I, I give examples of, of heads of sales or somebody who was a, a product guru uh, within a company. The, the, the company metrics and what the company values shift naturally when you're going through a, a merger and acquisition. And if you aren't attuned to that and, and don't shift with it, um, y- you, can, you can be left behind. So a, a lot of this, of what we're talking about is all commonsensical, but it kind of gets blurred when you're afraid and uncertain. And, and that's the other thing I highlight. I, I, my desire to bring transparency was to, to get you out of that that blur that haze of what is going on and what's happening to me so you can see those opportunities and you can be smarter about how you need to shift you mentioned cadence too and want to touch on that for a second you know one and done people often don't hear it you know they sort of get some impression and they're probably filled with emotion anyway so what is the right cadence to delivering that message and is it just delivering the same message over and over and over again so people hear it or is it evolving it in some way no i mean one if it's the same message over and over again you're you're going to irritate your uh your team and um with reason uh because it's why i highlight the the cadence is you've got certain group norms and and a good leader knows how frequently he or she needs to to speak to the team but you need to up that communication but in upping it, if you keep coming back and saying, yep, still don't know, you're, you're going to lose your team. So one of the things I highlight is that you can even, it's even a communication if you say, I don't have the answer to that yet, but we are working on it. Here's who is trying to define what the answer to that is. And it's also why, in, um, going back to our earlier discussion, it's why I focus on that. LOI due diligence period and talk about the scenarios then because you don't want to be flat-footed. You need to have answers to a lot of questions on day one. Day one isn't when you start to make these plans. Day one is when you need to be ready to share and communicate the vision clearly in anticipation of all the questions you're going to get asked. So having those frequently asked questions in mind before you announce it. And then the, the cadence is, it, it really, again, a good leader will know how often do I need to do it? Do I do it twice a week? Do we do it every day? I don't dictate that, but you do need to up the frequency of the communication and, and really be working towards answers if you don't have them yet so that your team feels as though, 
again, you're invested, you're, you understand how they feel and that the company recognizes these answers. We need to get these answers to people. I want to pivot for a little bit to the execution of the deal. So deal goes live, two companies come together, and oftentimes that means that some people are going to lose their job, right? You, you can create, air quote, efficiencies, pull two back office groups together. You don't need two, you need one. Um, what best practices do you see? When do you see it playing out better versus people getting themselves into trouble in making those decisions? Is it better to take your time and be pragmatic or is it better to have all of that set up and just execute and just cut real deep right away and then move on? Like, do you have any thoughts it, around that? The, the tough part is, and it, it, um, it ties to, you know, the business case always makes sense on paper and yet you, you don't know what's going to work until you s see how people behave. So, um, my, my energy is around, and I will say it took three acquisition experiences <laughs> to get to this, but you've got to rip the Band-Aid off earlier. Uh, you, you, the longer you delay that, the worse things get. Uh, and I experienced that in, in my own acquisition experiences. If you don't, if you, one, you need to... to anticipate that there will be again changes you need to see how people behave but you you also need to go in with a plan and execute against it a sense of urgency um it, because even though i've talked about the stages of grief this doesn't mean you need to delay the execution of things you just need to be aware that people are adapting and adjusting but it doesn't mean to just delay decision making uh, because that is a a critical component you know, what's interesting, and I talk about this a little bit in um, the HBR article, there's that us versus them dynamic that happens. And that oh, happens sure. between companies. Everyone expects that to happen. But what was fascinating to me in the research that I did, there's an us versus them between who stays and who goes. And what was fascinating to me is the people who stay think that the ones who leave are the lucky ones. Because often the ones who stay now have they, they, their jobs may be undefined or now they are doing the work of five people. Um, you know, it's not as rosy, um, as the people who leave think the people who leave or are, are pushed out or let go think the people who got to stay at the better end of the deal. And, and so that, that for me is fascinating. One, it's not one is better than the other, but each side thinks the other one gets the, you know, the better bargain. So for me, the, it's, it's really not delaying the decision-making, being clear about it. Um, and that's why I forced those conversations earlier because so many times, and this came up a lot in the interviews I did as well, where entire departments didn't know what was going to happen to them for months. And, and uh, several CEOs in particular said that's the worst thing that they did because you have no productivity. People aren't going to invest in doing anything if they don't know what their future is. So if you if you haven't defined that um, from the beginning, people will just sit around, uh, or they're just going to look to leave, um, to go elsewhere. They'll yeah, leave. Start start interviewing somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah. or the ones where they 
eliminated departments completely and then realized six months later, wow, we really needed them. So that's, that's why um, I find forcing that conversation so much earlier allows you to have more plans at the ready. Again, knowing that things can shift, you always have to be, be ready for the unexpected because it will happen. But the more you've thought through the different scenarios, I think the better, uh, the better chance for success that you have. Okay. Uh, well, this has all been great. I, I have two more questions for you and I know we're running out of time here. Um, pivoting a little bit. I know that you have been doing some writing and speaking specifically related to what we're going through with coronavirus and COVID. Um, what are you seeing as far as the parallels between the work that you've done in the M&A world and what's going on in the business world right now? Well, it's, it's actually, um, it's been fascinating to me. It came up when I was talking with someone about the work that I do in, in M&A. And, and he said, you know, I bet your knowledge for helping people through uncertain times, that's got to be really valuable right now. And I, I would confess I, I had been thinking about it, but not in those stark terms. And then I did um, an article with Fast Company um, how to lead when people are afraid. And it came directly from the work that I had been doing in mergers and acquisitions and um, got a lot of very positive feedback from that article. People saying, yes, this is when people are afraid, you, you, you showing empathy, having compassion, a lot of the themes that we've talked about, transparency and communication. Um, the other thing that came up from that was um, new leaders can emerge. When, when people are afraid, people you counted on can fall apart. Uh, and I say, you don't judge them. Um, you don't know what baggage, you know, comes with this. People, uh, crises like this can tap people's innermost fears. And, and you don't know something that they may have experienced uh, in the past or where they are now. Maybe a family situation has them really concerned. Well, uh, I've read a little bit too about the difference between, a, you know, a, a peacetime leader and a wartime leader. Yes. You know, that, that some people just in peacetime or when things are good are great leaders and they really know how to motivate and take charge and, and get things to the next level. And other people who you may never want to follow in good times when yeah. things go bad, <laughs> you know, are the ones who, you know, it's their bluntness or whatever that, that actually can, can rally people behind them and build right. and instill that confidence. And so, you know, a lot of leaders can adapt from one to the other, but a lot can't. And so, yeah, that's a good point. Looking, looking to different leaders sometimes is necessary. Well, and, and it's why I, uh, I noted Churchill. He was a great wartime leader because he's just, you know, spoke the truth. But what, what, uh, on that point, and, uh, it's a rallying cry. I think a, a number of introvert friends of mine said, I love that article because what I highlighted is the people who you expected to be your leaders may or may not be able to rise to this occasion. But oftentimes you can have those, those more introverted, grounded people who you just, you didn't think of for leadership qualities, but they can rise to the occasion because people will follow them. They, they're calm, they're even keeled, they're looking at, okay, what needs to be done and how do we do it from, through a different lens. And what I, what I highlight is, don't discount the fact that you may have, you may have leaders who emerge that you hadn't expected. Um, and I just recently did a, a panel where with uh, Stanton Chase, 
Uh, and the woman who ran a survey with a number of her clients said one of the takeaways were how many CEOs said a fascinating outcome of this has been new leaders that have emerged in their companies that they hadn't expected. Um, and that can happen in an M&A scenario as well. So be open to that uh, because I think it's, it's a great opportunity for, for, for people to take on new leadership roles. Yeah. And I think there's an element too there where it's new leaders and new tactics. Yes. You know, as the world changes, sometimes new people have new ideas that can help you help propel your business forward and, you know, change the way that you approach business into the future. That'll make you much more successful. So being open to some of those things too. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you, you touched on it earlier with, uh, with the crisis and I've written a couple of articles around this as well. It's, it's a different toolkit, the leadership toolkit. We tend to have the traditional leader, the bold, confident leader who shares a vision and we all go and execute against it. Yeah. But in a, in a crisis, the leader that, and we've seen it happen, right? The leader that people um, feel comfortable following is demonstrating compassion and empathy and is being transparent while also at the same time acknowledging we need to bring experts in. We need experts to weigh in on this roadmap and the way forward. And, and acknowledging what they do and don't know, and then modeling the behavior they wish to see from other people. So we've seen both the good and bad leadership model through this crisis that applies to uh, an M&A scenario as well. And, and for me, that's the key piece of that is it's a different toolkit. Um, you know, soft skills, they have their moments and then, then they die away. I think soft skills are getting uh, renewed attention, rightly so, because that's it's a key part of a, a leader's toolkit through times of uncertainty. Yeah, you said it before. I, I think maybe good to revisit it here, which is, you know, feelings are not often brought into the workplace, and we often just, hey, you come in, you do your job. We've all got work to do. Let's band together. Let's do this. But in times of uncertainty, it seems like that's when emotion really rears its head. And if you don't address it, start to get the train starts to get off tracks a little bit. And so yeah. it seems like that's really the, the adjustment that leaders can make is when things start to get tough, let's start to, let's start to slow down, start to listen a lot more, recognize and show empathy for people's feelings. And that that's, while that might be a slowdown, that's actually going to speed up the process of grief to get to acceptance and help everybody move forward. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I find encouraging with all of these Zoom calls, <laughs> even though we're all Zoomed out, um, people are seeing a different side of their colleagues, their bosses. You've, I'm sure, heard stories too where people were able to see, wow, you really make your bed, and uh, what's that behind you? And um, or the kid you know, who kids, runs in, exactly, or the dog kids or the... running in, or the dog, and 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 it's made it's made bosses. I've I've heard more than one person share with me a story where they said, I just I saw a different side of my boss, and I think even even leaders are seeing demonstrating that that side has people feeling more connected, and I really. I hope that we don't lose that as we evolve into this next phase because I think it's had a rewarding impact on, on team collaboration and feeling that truly feeling like we're all in this together and recognizing that 
it's okay to be human in these, in these engagements and in this conversation. So I'm hoping that that fosters more, more openness and more connectedness at that level. Amen. I'm with you. Last question. And it's the one I end on with everybody, which is, um, in your mind, what is the purpose of business? What is the purpose of business? Yeah. For me, it's, 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 it's frankly why I'm doing what I'm doing now. It's leaving a legacy. It's, it's making a mark in this world that allows, uh, allows for, whether it's a product, a service, a solution, a something that I'm bringing to this world in the role that I played um, that wouldn't necessarily have happened in the way that it did without business. And, and for me, business is about the legacy you leave, the people you touch, and the impact that that, that, that has on other people's lives. That's great. I appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. I just, I really like getting everybody's take because everybody has a little different take on what that means to them. And I think stopping to think about that has an impact then on how you approach the business that you're in. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you sharing. You and bet. This has been wonderful. I, I love the conversation. I think there's some really good stuff in here for anybody who's going through any kind of change within their company. I mean, it really, you know, you frame it around mergers and acquisitions, but it's really any kind of change management within an organization. Um, and there's even some good stuff for, for any kind of change with that grieving. I really love that, that line. Grieving is mourning the future that won't be. I'm going to, uh, that's a deep one. I'm gonna have to think about that one for a while. Uh, I'm gonna have to meditate on that one. So I, re <laughs> I really appreciate your time where, so you, you do this professionally. So where could people find you if they need help doing this? Uh, a number of ways. Uh, first I'd say my website, jenniferjfondreve.com. And we'll link to that in the notes. Super. Uh, LinkedIn also, I, I do a lot. Uh, I post a lot on LinkedIn and um, always welcome um, connections through LinkedIn. I found that the more you add value in that environment, the, the more, dif you know, the greater difference that we can all have. And I think LinkedIn has been great in that regard. Um, and then my book is um, available on Amazon. And we'll link to all of that as well so that if anybody wants to reach you, uh, they can just click on the links and do so easily. Thank you. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate it. If anybody needs help, you'll know how to get her now. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it, thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.